Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. is on. Yep, there we go. All right. So uh, I went through my manuscript. I cut out all the funny stuff since Tom took all my time. So if this sermon is boring, blame Tom. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm Pastor Joey. Most of you know me. You know my family. Some of you that were working as uh, part of kids camp over the last week got to meet uh, more of my family than you had before. Two of my nieces, two of Anna's cousins were here for kids camp. They spent uh, the whole week with us. Uh, the two little girls, they're great little girls, they're six and four years old, uh, but unlike our only child daughter, they're growing up in a home with an older brother and a younger brother, uh, so their basic patterns and habits of life are a little uh, louder um, <laughs> than our home is used to, a little more chaotic. I was putting Anna to bed last night and she said, I'm so glad I don't have any younger sisters. They're so loud. Now, we knew, you know, it's fine. They're more rambunctious than, than we have tended to be as a family, and that's fine. But we knew uh, when we were bringing them into our home for the week that if we wanted to avoid all of us spending a lot of time in time out uh, over the week, we needed to set down some ground rules. So we drove out to get them. We're coming back. We're about 15 minutes back from our house. We stopped the conversation and said, okay, girls, here's the way things work in our house. And we laid down the rules for them. Now, you know, of course, if you've tried to manage a family for more than about five minutes, that rules are absolutely essential to the household running well, running smoothly. You know, and we know that in our homes, the rules are required we also know that in our homes, following the rules is not what makes us part of the family. Following the rules is not what gets us into the family or keeps us into the family. But sometimes we forget that when it comes to our relationship with God and our sense of belonging in the household, the family of faith. We get in the habit sometimes of thinking that God loves us only to the same extent that we're able to obey him. And as soon as we can't obey him anymore, he can't love us anymore. You know, when we told our nieces the household rules, we made sure to tell them that, look, whether you obey these or not, you are part of our family. We love you. We accept you into our home, and we'd like for you to follow these rules. 
make things a little quieter. But if you don't, you're still part of our family. We're not kicking you out because you can't keep the, the volume down. You're part of our family, so you belong. But we told them what our family is like so that as they become even more like our family, they can act the way our family acts. The rules followed the relationship foundation of them being part of our family. Paul is trying to get across almost the exact same thing in the passage we just heard read, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. If you haven't turned there already, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you that's handy. You can grab that, uh, turn to page 1169, or if you're quiet enough, you can hear Mark's phone as it reads the passage out loud to us when he pulls it up in you version. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, hey, as you, as you turn there, as you turn to Colossians 2, remember uh, the context from the passage that Jeff explained last week. In verses 6 through 15, Paul is explaining how the death of Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection is about as huge a reversal of what you would expect, of the normal way the world works, as could be imagined. It's there especially in verse 15. It says, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers, the authorities, Rome, Israel, the greatest government and the highest religion that the world at this time has ever known, these are the ones who conspired to put Jesus on the cross. One commentator points out, these powers, these rulers and authorities, angry at Jesus' challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. But Paul declares, on the contrary, that on the cross, God was stripping them naked, the rulers and authorities. He was stripping them naked, was holding them up to public contempt, was leading them in his own triumphal procession. This reversal of values, this reversal of what you expect, then becomes the source of hope for all who have been held captive under the rule of the old rulers and authorities, those who have been enslaved in fear and mutual suspicion. Christ breaks the last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on their behalf. Now, we have to remember that context because as we move into this passage, it's with this utter defeat of all old rulers and authorities in mind that Paul then turns to his audience and he says, why are you still acting like they're around? Why are you still submitting to the old rulers and the old authorities? Why, why are you doing what they say it takes to make you right with God? Don't you understand they've already been completely defeated in Christ? Why are you living as if they're still uh, active in your faith and in your life? Why go back to serve those who have already been defeated? That's the question that brings us into this passage. And in this passage, as we dig through it, we're going to see that Paul, uh, basically his fundamental argument in this passage is pretty simple. Because of Jesus, we are free, free from the burden of earning God's love. Because of Jesus, we are free from the burden of earning God's love and are now free to grow in God's love. 
Because of Jesus, we are free from the burden of earning God's love and are now free to earn or to grow in God's love. It's a fairly simple argument and yet one that impacts the entirety of our lives and our existence. Now we're going to walk through these verses 16 through 23 and we're going to kind of walk through them in three main movements. Uh, first, we're going to see that, well, we're going to see what the burden of religion is. What is this burden of religion that is on us? Secondly, we're going to see that because of Jesus, we are freed from that burden of earning God's love. And third, because of Jesus, we're now free to grow in God's love. Point one, the burden of religion. Point two, the freedom of the gospel. And point three, the gift to grow. So let's jump in. First, the burden of religion. Now, I'm calling this the burden of religion, but perhaps a little more accurately, uh, it would be put something like the burden we try to answer with religion. The burden we try to answer with religion. Here's what I mean. There's a a kind of fundamental awareness uh, in all cultures, all people at all times that something is not right with the world. It's awareness that hovers somewhat out of sight when things are going well and hits us right front and center when things are not going well. The world is not as it should be. Now, we may face that sense of the world not being right, of us not belonging here, when we face any one of the typical adult failures, a marriage that's fallen apart, a string of lost jobs, a crushing debt, an unexpected death in the family. But the sense also hovers just kind of outside of the realm of our immediate awareness, threatening to sneak in any time we find ourselves with a few moments of free time and nothing to distract ourselves with. You know that feeling of anxiety you get when you realize you don't know where your phone is? That's the sense of fear that maybe I'm not enough by myself saying, quick, where's my distraction machine? I need something to hide the fact that I'm not okay with myself, with the world around me, with others around me. I mean, obviously, that's why we text while we're driving, right? Because we're afraid if we wait the 10 minutes it takes to get there that we're going to lose the connection, we're going to lose the relationship. It's why, you know, you pull up to a stop sign and then you pull out your phone to see if anything's happened since the last time you were at a stop sign. You guys are laughing, but it sounds really awkward, like, oh, no, (laughs) that's me. It's why, you know, if you find yourself on a Saturday night with nothing to do, you start texting people, what's up? You doing anything? How's it going? And you text, like, 20 people so that one of them will respond and have a conversation. You shout out into the void and hope that somebody answers you back. Because me, by myself, is not enough. There's something wrong Not just between me and the world and me and other people, but between me and myself. And I need something to fill that gap. That awareness that there's something wrong with the world that faces us down when we look out into an uncertain future. I don't know what it's going to hold. I don't know if I'm big enough to face the challenges that are coming my way. But maybe if I just say it enough times, I can do this. Maybe if I believe it hard enough, I'll be okay. Of course, then we're also left wondering, am I really okay or am I just whistling in the dark, trying to keep the fear away? So some of us are afraid of retirement. Who am I when I don't have my work anymore? 
who am I when I don't have that thing that I've, I've depended on to give me a sense of value, a sense of worth? It's this back of mind or sometimes front and center sense of fear uh, or anxiety or maybe even just a malaise depending on how strongly you feel it. It's that sense that is evidence of, of a world not right, of a world that, that doesn't, doesn't fit quite right, of a place where we don't feel at home, evidence that something is wrong between us and the world, between us and one another, between us and ourselves. Now, every age, every culture has felt this kind of lack, this uh, sense of disintegration with the world or of an incongruity with the world. Every age, every culture has felt it and has tried to ameliorate it in different ways. They've tried to make it go away or given themselves different defenses against the feeling. We as enlightened moderns may look back on cultures such as the one Paul is writing in and Paul is writing to and judge them perhaps as unenlightened because they interpreted that sense of lack as evidence of a God who was angry with them and needed to be appeased. But don't be too quick to judge. We fill the void as well. We just do it in different ways. We look to our accomplishments, our identities, our communities to give us that sense of worth that we could then use as kind of a buffer against the world to protect us from this sense of not belonging, of not feeling at home here. For example, some of us look to our jobs. Our, our jobs become the place where, to the degree to which we perform them well, we feel like we have worth, we, we have value. We, we say to one another, look, look at this thing that I made. Look at this thing that I did. Look at this thing that I, I caused to happen. And what we're really saying to the people around us or maybe to God or whatever power we think is behind the universe what we're really saying is, look, aren't I worthy to be loved? Aren't I worth getting to know? Aren't I somebody that maybe you would want to spend some time with? If you don't believe me, try doing something really awesome and then don't tell anyone. It hurts not to tell anyone. I want them to know that I'm worth loving because I did this thing. We look to our jobs, our accomplishments, the things we can point at. Sometimes we look to our relationships. Some of us have a string of friendships, each one that has been crushed under the weight of our need for affirmation. We so desperately need other people to tell us that we're worth getting to know that we can't stop talking, telling them about all the reasons that we're worth getting to know. And in the end, they just can't, they can't take the weight of our need to be affirmed and the relationship ends, so we move on to another one. Some of us treat friendships that way. Some of us treat spouses that way, children that way. Some of us even just declare ourselves as emancipated from the whole game entirely. I don't need anyone to make me feel accepted. I can accept myself. It doesn't so much matter what I choose to do as the fact that I'm the one that chooses to do it. That's the only thing that matters. Of course, telling yourself you accept yourself is about as useless as me telling myself that I'm good at basketball. I'm not, and it doesn't matter how much I believe myself, I'm still getting picked last. You can't affirm yourself. 
It doesn't work that way. The self that needs affirmation cannot give itself affirmation because deep down you know maybe this isn't true. Maybe I'm just making it up. Maybe it's all foundationless. There's this fundamental sense of incongruity with the world that I don't fit it. It doesn't fit me. I don't fit the relationships. They don't go how I feel like they're supposed to go. I don't feel inside the way I think I'm supposed to feel if the world worked the way I feel like it should work. And when we face up to that, consciously or unconsciously, we move into different ways of trying to justify ourselves before the world. In past times and in other places, they did it by appeasing a god or the gods. We do it by getting therapy, going to counseling, finding relationships that we think can make us feel like we're worth something. That's the burden of religion, or perhaps the burden that religion is trying to answer. Of course, Paul doesn't have too many nice things to say about using religion to answer that ache because, as we'll find out as we read this, it just places another weight, another burden on top of us. Look at Colossians 2, verse 16. Paul writes, therefore, you know, in light of Jesus uh, completely routing all rulers and authorities that came before him, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, that's ceremonial food laws, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, the the rituals of religious observance, the rituals of worship. These are just a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind not holding fast to the head. It says, let, let no one pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Apparently, the Colossian believers were under some sort of pressure from other Jewish believers within, uh, within the Colossian church to say, you know, I, I know, I know you're part of the church now. You're part of the family of God now. But I just, as a brother who loves you, I just want to make sure you know you're not actually in until you can keep all the food laws, until you make sure you, you get to all of our ritual observances, until, uh, until we see the kind of asceticism that really proves you know, that you're serious about this thing, until we can see from the outside that, that you're conforming morally to the standards of our community. See, if you don't follow the rules if you don't have the experiences, if you don't observe the rituals of our family, you're not in, I'm sorry. But you're going to want to get on board. Don't let anyone pass judgment. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Paul is writing to these believers saying, don't let anyone tell you you're not in until you're good enough. Don't let anyone tell you that there's a list of things you have to tack on, add on to your faith in Christ in order to be accepted. Because the person passing judgment, the person doing the disqualification, is is telling them, telling these new believers, you are out. You are excluded. I know you think God loves you, but he doesn't yet. I know you think you're part of this family, but you're not, not yet. 
He's telling them, look, I, I know you think you're in, but you got a long ways to go before you're really part of this family. Now, ritualistic behavior, spiritual ex- experiences, moralistic behavior that came through in verse 21. Paul's making fun of it. Here's the rules. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. It's like he, he's being sarcastic and saying these are people who have rules like don't even get close. Don't even look at it. Don't, don't even think about it. Until you're that pure, you're not part of us. Ritual experiences, spiritual experiences, moralistic behavior. This is what it takes to be accepted, to be part of the family of God. There's a bit of a hint in this text that the Colossian believers were starting to buy it. They were thinking, well, okay, I know... What we heard from Epaphras, he came from Paul. It says, by grace, through faith, you are saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But these guys are really spiritual, and they make a lot of sense. So maybe faith gets me in, but but then I need to work at kind of staying in. Maybe, maybe faith and grace is, is sort of what gets me motivated to then do the work that, that, that makes me part of the family of God. So let's add, let's add a little Judaism back into our Christianity. Let's add a little ritual. Let's add a little ceremony. Let's add a little asceticism and moral conformity. Actually, let's add a lot. They had gone way beyond even what was given in the Old Testament in terms of their rules. For instance, I read this week, uh, there's the commandment not to uh, boil a calf in its mother's milk, not to cook meat in the milk from its mother. I don't understand why necessarily you wouldn't do that. But the, the rule by this point was you can't even have milk and meat in the same meal. Like, don't eat meat and drink milk at the same time. They have to be in separate meals so that the, the risk is just not there at all. It's those kind of rules that had been added on and sort of built up on the law code that now they're saying, until you can obey all this, until you can be perfect at it, you're just not in. And they're thinking, well, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. Maybe I'm sort of in, and then I kind of earn my way the rest of the way by making sure I really follow the rules, that I, I, I get to church every week, that, that I give regularly, that I don't commit any big sins in public, that most of the time when I'm out, people see me as, as kind of a good Christian, um, that nobody has any real reason to doubt whether or not I'm saved because of my behavior. Maybe if I do all those things, God will keep me in, love me a little bit more than he does otherwise. Well, how well does that work? You know, I think we all sort of get that when we depend on ourselves to make ourselves feel uh, like we belong or like we're worth something, then whatever that thing is that we put our weight on, we are constantly afraid of that being cut out from underneath us. If it's your family, for instance, your sense of worth comes from having the right family. Man, I, I have this... I'm the best dad, I'm the best husband, I have a great marriage, I have great kids, we live in a great home, just look at our family. Can't you see, this is a family that God is blessing because of how righteous we are. Well, then what happens when your family spins out of control? What happens when your kid does something you never thought anyone in your family would do? What happens when your spouse looks at you and says, I'm done? What happens, in short, when you have crushed your family under the weight of your expectation to give you worth? It's gone. If you put your sense of justification on your job, on your performance at work, 
that's great until suddenly you get some criticism. And then your entire sense of self-worth has been destroyed because someone doesn't find value in what you find valuable. Now, I mean, you can, you can look at, uh, at, any, at people criticizing you or your kids as they're falling apart or your family or, or any of the things we use to depend on ourselves and say, well, I just am depending on me. It's just down to me and me alone. I'm justification for myself. But again, what happens when you let yourself down? What's left? We can't justify ourselves or make ourselves feel worthy, no matter how hard we try in the things of this world. There's a Christian version, too. A Christian version that says, I know I'm saved by grace through faith alone. Yes, that's a given, but I know I'm really saved because I I sort of worked myself up into a state where I'm feeling really repentant and I've decided I'm going to give God everything and he can have my whole life. And, and now that I've done the work of getting myself ready to give myself to God, well, now God, now Jesus comes in and saves me. I, I sort of prepared the place for him. You know, I made, a, I made myself ready for him. And now that I've made myself ready, now he can come in and save me. But what happens? What happens when our sense of feeling right with God is based on our own abilities to keep the rituals, the ceremonies, the the asceticism, the morality. What happens when how we feel about our connection with God is based entirely on what we do and how well we do it? Well, two things happen. The same two things that happen whenever you uh, skip a workout or cheat on your diet. You either say, screw it. I don't need the diet. I don't need the workout. More of me to love. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Eat whatever I want. Right? You either chuck the whole thing or you double down. And you're like, okay, I'm going to hit three extra workouts this week. I'm going to make up for it. I can't believe I'm the kind of person that would skip a workout. Oh, man, I can't believe I ate that hamburger. I'm, I'm having nothing but evaporated water for the next week. That's all I'm having. I'm going to make up for this burger that I just ate. And, and you, you tear yourself down and say, if I just tried a little harder, I'd make it. It's the exact same way with your relationship with God. If your sense of worth before God, your sense of being loved by God is based on your performance, you're either going to throw the whole thing away Or beat yourself up trying to hold yourself up to an unrealistic standard. Religion is a burden because it it crushes you deeper into yourself. It doesn't drive you to God. Religion pushes you into yourself. Look what Paul says in verse 23. These things, the the ritual, the ceremony, the moralism, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are worth nothing when it comes to selfishness because self-restraint is just another kind of selfishness. It drives you into yourself. Imagine you're in a dating relationship. This perfect guy, perfect girl. She's awesome. He's phenomenal. Such a gentleman. And you 
you're ready to say the words that you know are going to change everything forever. They're either going to make your wildest dreams come true or they're going to crush all of your dreams into nothing. You're sitting across from this person. It's at the end of a romantic dinner, candles and all that. And you look them in the eyes and you say, I love you. Boy, that person looks right back at you and they, they look you in the eyes and they say, I love that you love me. <laughs> Right? You're saying, I love you. I love who you are. I love who you're becoming. I want to be there for it. I want to see it happen. I want to be part of it, part of your life. And they look at you and they say, I love that you make me feel good about myself. I love that you make me feel like I'm worth loving. I love that you make me feel, I think I just almost broke out into an Aretha Franklin song. I love that you make me feel whatever, great, awesome, bubbles, unicorns and puppies and all of that stuff. And... Everything that other person did to maintain the relationship, to keep close, to get closer to you, to build the relationship together, all the things they gave up, all the time they spent with you, all the money they spent with you, all of it was them loving themselves through you. All of it was them using you to love themselves. If God says, you are accepted by my free gift of love, and we say, thanks, now let me do all these things so I feel like I've earned it, I'm worth it, all of those things we do are us loving ourselves through God, using him to make us feel better about ourselves. Religion, the whole, all the ritual, all the ceremony, all the moralism, all of it done for the purpose of making ourselves feel worthy or making us feel like maybe God accepts us is just ourselves loving ourselves and using God to do it. That's why Paul can say they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Absolutely no value. If anything, it makes it worse because it drives you deeper into yourself. In the end, a religious approach to fixing whatever is wrong with us is not going to work. Not least because we can't maintain the devotion necessary to the way of life, but also by the very, very fact that if we're doing it to justify ourselves, by definition, we're condemning ourselves. If we're going to be right with whatever is wrong with us, with us in the world, with us in each other, with us in ourselves, it's going to take a love and an action outside of ourselves. It's going to take more than just observance of the ceremonial laws, the ritual feasts, the Sabbaths, more even than supernatural visions, moral conformity, and asceticism. It's going to take a love that comes from outside of ourselves. It's going to take a love and a freedom that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul's trying to get across here. Because of Jesus, you are free from the burden of earning God's love. Because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, you are free from the burden of trying to earn God's love. Paul says the old rulers, the old authorities, the old legal codes, the old record of debt that has been held against us, it's been canceled. It's been wiped away. They've been overthrown, trampled, defeated, crushed. 
all those codes of moralism, all the ritual sacrifices, all the ceremonies that we, th- that we use to make ourselves right with God are gone. They're a shadow, he says in verse 17. A shadow being cast by the ultimate sacrifice, Christ himself, who is the substance, the rock-bottom reality that you can depend on. Paul says in verse 20, look, with Christ, if with Christ, that means sense with Christ, because with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. With Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. You died to the old rulers and the old authorities. It's a word that means not just that you died, but you died right out from under. He's working down on this this sort of crushing metaphor that the rulers and the authorities over us were suppressing and crushing us, but in Christ we died out from under the weight of the old rulers, the old authorities. The rescue in the nick of time comes through the death of Christ. With Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So why? Why, he says, why are you, why do you still submit? Why, as if you were still alive in that world, do you submit to regulations? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't even look at it. Because that's referring to things that are all used, that all perish as they're used. Why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? These look smart, but they are of no value whatsoever in forming a relationship with God. He says, look, in Jesus you died to the world. Why are you actively trying to live as if you're still being crushed by the old rules and the old authorities? Why are you still living like they're active and operative? Why? It's a good question. And it's a question we have to keep asking ourselves too. Why do we feel, even with the free grace of God through faith, that, that, that we have to have this kind of respectable Christianity that, that tells people, you know I, know, I know grace through faith, I know you believe it, but I want to see a little life change before, I can, before you know you're really in. I want to see a little moral conformity here. I want to see a little, uh, a little self-restraint I want to see you kind of showing up to church every week. I want to see you doing the rituals, making the kind of the sacrifices of money. I want to see you conforming to the pattern of, of the rest of this family before I'm willing to admit that maybe you're in. Before I'm willing to say, yeah, you're, you're part of this family. Rules come first. Show me that and then I'll believe you're in. Why are we tempted to even believe that about ourselves? I think God has accepted me. I I think he's accepted me by faith through Christ. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died to forgive me of my sins. Uh, I have accepted that by faith, and yet now I have this thing in my life, and it's just, I don't know if God can forgive it, and and I think I'm going to hell now. Why do we feel like we can come to God by grace through faith, but that we stay as long as we're working hard at it. Why are we living as if the old rules and the old authority is still there? Why are we living as if 
Jesus has not completely destroyed all of our old attempts to justify ourselves. That belief that we work hard at it so that God will keep us, or we work hard at it so that we can feel like God is keeping us, is a repudiation of the good news of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British minister living in the last century, and he wrote this. He says, after I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And they hesitate. And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know that I've been wasting my breath, he says. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I just, I'm not good enough. I don't think I'm good enough, but it's a denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good and I am good in him. As long as you go on thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for God. You're denying the gospel. You're denying God's grace. Lloyd-Jones is getting at what Paul is getting at here in this passage. The only thing that matters is if we can say, I can't do this myself. I can't do this myself. I am not good enough. I never will be good enough. I need Christ, and only in him can I be good enough. I have died in him. He lives in me. I'm not enough on my own. How do you know that you're a Christian? It's because you've not just repented of your sins. We all know that. That's a great path to go down if you want to be a Pharisee. I've not just repented of my sins, but repented of everything I've ever done to try to make myself savable. We don't just repent of what we've done wrong. We repent of all the things we have done right to try to get God to love us. That's how you know that you're believing in Jesus alone by grace through faith. When you not only repent of the things you've done wrong, but all the things you've done right to try to get him to, to, to believe that you're worth saving. It's only when we come to, to God and say, all I have done is chase Jesus to the cross. Only then... Are we ready to be forgiven? That's what Paul's getting at in this passage. Those old ways of trying to make ourselves lovable, savable enough for God to save us, those have been put to death. They've been put to death in Christ. All that's left now is for us to be free from the burden of earning God's love through the grace of Jesus, through faith in him. And we're now free to grow in God's love. Look quickly at verse 19. Paul's talking about these uh, believers saying, no, 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 you've got to add all these things. He's saying, look, by adding all those things, you're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. There's a lot in this verse, just a few comments. Of course, Jesus is the head. We're not supposed to try to figure out what the joints and the ligaments are. That's it's part of the analogy, but it's not, not anything specific. We're supposed to notice that life flows from the head to the body. Life is given from the head to the body. It's a gift of God, a growth that comes from God. 
Now, this passage, this is a word of caution. Um, going into this passage and really hitting home this no rules, no regulations, no moral conformity thing, that is, Paul is not here trying to say there's no place for rules. There's no place for a moral sense that binds us together that we all subscribe to. But what he is saying, and we'll go on to develop this in chapter 3 next week when Pastor Tom jumps into it, and then the week after that, Pastor Bob Blonick will be up here. What he is saying is that the way we live now is less about an externally imposed set of rules and more about an internally generated set of practices that help us live into the image of Christ that comes through in the verses we're going to look at. If we have died with Christ, now we live in him. We have died to rules. We live in life, in virtue. We'll explore that in the next couple of weeks. This week... What I want you to remember is that because of Jesus, we are free from the burden of earning God's love. Free then to grow into God's love, which we'll explore in the next couple of weeks. You know, our two nieces that that visited us this last week are growing up in a broken home. Uh, Their parents divorced just a month or two ago. So they're going to grow up with a sense of not belonging, with a sense of needing to earn acceptance from people, from their parents, by how well they behave, depending on which home that they're in. And they're going to feel that way no matter how often their parents tell them, we accept you, you're, you're, you're part of our family, you don't have to behave in order to feel like you belong. They're children of brokenness now. So we brought them into our home and hope to in the future because we want to bring them into the broader family, the extended family of Laird's is the the, the family name, the extended family that, that tells them you are accepted. Whether you behave or not, you are part of us. We as a church are the extended family of God filled with children of brokenness who desperately need a place that says you belong before you behave. But while you're here, let's learn how to do this together. We are children of brokenness who need to be drawn back into the family through the love of a father and the sacrifice of an older brother who's given himself for us. Father, you have given us more than we deserve in drawing us back to you. We are like children of children of children of children who have forgotten what it means to live in the palace we were made for. We have found ourselves in the muck and in the mud and in the mire that holds us and haunts us. Mm -hmm. We have found ourselves in the brokenness and distress that comes from living in this world. And we say to you, Father, save us. While we were still sinners, before we were made righteous, our brother Christ died for us. That is all we claim. That is all we hope in. Cause us this week to repent of all the ways we try to earn your love And help us to rest free in the gift of grace you have given to us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.